Thanks, mate. It'd be, um, be really helpful if you can open your Bibles up to Acts 17. I'm going to focus on that uh, second, on the first reading, sorry, first. That's on page 1111. Is that right, I think? Uh, in, Acts, uh, in Acts 17. Wait, sorry? That's the one. Yes, thank you. Well done. We're off to a good start tonight. That's, uh, that's fantastic. I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us as we continue our series uh, in Jesus's. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to turn our attention to your word. I pray, Father, that you might help us to concentrate. I pray, Father, that you would open our ears, open our spiritual eyes, soften our hearts, and prepare us, Father, so that we might receive this word of yours. By your Holy Spirit, Father, take this word now, challenge and change us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so we're looking at two things tonight. Uh, God is, uh, Jesus is good for you and one religion among many. And I want to start as we've been doing this series over the last, uh, the last term. Uh, we've been doing three things when I've been preaching. We've been thinking about how to take a walk in this worldview, to consider what the Bible has to say about it, and then do some work on what we should do with it if it's true. So let's start with that go for a walk in this worldview thing. So what do people mean when they say, you say, oh, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian, and they say, oh, that's good for you. Do, do you know this answer? Oh, yeah, that's, that's good for you. Well, what are they really saying? What's going on for them? Let's put ourselves in their worldview. I think, first of all, they're saying, well, this is really awkward. Uh, we, we saw some stats a couple of weeks ago that said 45% of Australians don't have a religious conversation. They just don't go there. So if all of a sudden Australians find themselves in a, a religious conversation, help, I'm drowning, this is very awkward, get me out of here, right? The second thing I think they're probably thinking is, please don't say anything more, right? You said something about Jesus, I said that was good for you, can we be finished now? Like, don't say any more. And what they're really wondering is, you're not too into it, are you? And of course, if they're saying you're not too into it, are you, what's the expected answer that you're supposed to say? Oh, no, no, I, I, it's just a bit of a hobby, really. I'm sorry I brought it up. That's kind of it, isn't it? So when we say, oh, that's good for you, here's what happens in my brain. Maybe I'm being a little bit unkind, but I think that this answer is actually really condescending. Oh, that's good for you. I'm delighted for you. Good, good on you. You've found the little Jesus, have you? So pleased for you. So I, I, my vibe is, it's actually a really condescending thing to say. But let's think a little bit more about it, right? If you say it's good for you, if Jesus is bad, then you're saying you don't care about me. Do, do you get it, right? So if Jesus isn't a good guy, and I say, oh, that's good for you, I'm really saying I don't care about you. You with me? But here's the thing. Most of the people who are saying that probably think that Jesus is basically harmless, Right? You could say you've taken up knitting, and they say, good for you. That's great. I'm into Jesus. Good for you. Jesus is basically harmless. But here's the really interesting thing. I want to think, then perhaps he could be good for you too, yeah? Right? So if Jesus is good for me, and he's harmless, could he be good for you? I want to ask that question back. So if it's good for you, I want to say, well, could he be good for you as well? 
Second answer is a little bit uh, a little bit different, but I think they're related. Good for you is it doesn't really matter; it's pretty harmless. Jesus' one religion among many is they're all kind of doing the same basic vibey thing. It's okay. It's just one religion among many. Nothing to get too excited about. So what's happening in that worldview? Well, I think that person is saying they all look pretty much the same to me. They all look pretty much the same. And maybe I know some different religious people and they're all pretty much the same. So, you know, Bob in accounting is a Buddhist and uh, Muhammad in sales is a Muslim, but, you know, they're all good guys. All religions are basically the same, aren't they? hand-waving, etc. Do, do, you know, do you not have these conversations? I, I remember having these conversations in my work world. Uh, I think there's one way they could be saying this, though. One religion among many, yeah, they're all equally bad, right? This is the aggressive one. There's the kind of hand-waving one, and there's the other one who goes, yeah, yeah, they're all equally bad, right? Where do wars come from? Religion, right? It's all, it's all religion's fault. Okay, they're all basically the same, just one religion among many, but they're just one of a bad lot. Here's what I think about that answer. I think that answer is actually incredibly arrogant. I'll tell you why. I think it's saying I see something up at my heightened enlightenment level. I see something that you plebs don't see. I've got some insight into the world that I just need to drop on you. All religions are the same. Uh, Let me explain. Basically, the reason I feel it's so arrogant is you're saying to me, I know more about your religion than you do. Do you get this? When I tell you all religions are basically the same, I'm saying to you, I have some special insight into all the world's religions, and whatever you think personally about your religion, I'm telling you they're all the same. It's pretty arrogant, isn't it? If you set Bob and Muhammad down, do you think they'd agree with you? let you in a little secret. They wouldn't. (laughs) You're saying that you know more about my religion than I do, or you haven't thought much about it at all. See, I think this has the same level of insight as uh, backstroke is exactly the same as freestyle. They're in the pool, aren't they? You can win a Commonwealth Games medal for them. They're exactly the same. Sorry? Or you one into the other. You could multiply the similarities, couldn't you? You wear the same togs. They're all basically the same. Now, look, at some absolute level, they involve swimming, right? But it's, if you've got someone who's genuinely into swimming, to say, I've got a gold medal in backstroke versus freestyle, they're different things. And I'm sure you guys will tell me, am I wrong here? Do I need to go to something else? Are they basically the same, are they? Is that what you're telling me? No. Okay, here's the thing. I reckon that they're quite different. They have some nuance, but, but it'd be like someone saying, um, look, I'm mad keen into baseball, and someone else saying, I love soccer, and someone comes up to you, they're basically the same. Both balls sports, aren't they? Sports are all the same. There's teams, and they do things with balls. So, uh, roughly the same. Now, guys, we, we, can, we can have a bit of a shaking head moment at the sports analogy, but why do we let people get away with it on the same level when it comes to religion? It's just absolutely rude to say that. And on top of that, here's the last bit that I think they're thinking. I guess since they don't follow one, they're basically saying all of you who follow one are clueless. 
right? So the person who says all religions are basically the same is never a religious person. Here's the, it's that interesting, isn't it? See, only the secular person would say all religions are the same. No religious people would say all religions are the same. And so what they're saying is, I don't have a religion, but I'm glad you found yours. It goes back to that same patting on the head moment. You're all basically clueless. I love this quote from Ravi Zacharias, uh, reading a book called Jesus Among Other Gods. And if you're looking for any of this comparative religion stuff, he does a great job. He's a guy who came from Hinduism and found Jesus. Okay? Now, he doesn't think that they're the same. Are you with me? He left a religion and found another one. Here's what Ravi says. He says, philosophically these days, you can believe anything so long as you don't claim it to be true. Morally, you can practice anything as long as you don't claim it to be a better way. And then he says, religiously, you can hold to anything, ready for the kicker here, as long as you don't bring Jesus into it. That's true. This was my experience in my workplace. You can have a conversation about God and prayer and religion until I drop the J word in and then everything changes. Everything changes. Just don't bring Jesus into it. Well, that's the state of our world, thinking everything is roughly the same. I want to suggest that that's not the case, and we want to see what the Bible has to say. Now, when we turn to the Bible, the, the accuser of, you know, everything's basically the same, you're just a bigoted Christian, might, might argue, hey, the Bible just teaches you about only one God. So you've been brainwashed. You've sat in church all your life, or maybe you're a newcomer, but you've sat in church and you only know about one God. If you knew about more gods, you'd be more understanding. I want to show you that's profoundly untrue. The Bible does not teach us just about one God. Here's my overview of the Bible. This is my timeline of the Bible. It goes from Genesis on one end all the way through the Old Testament to the new creation at the other end. That's the bright, shiny earth at the other end. I want to show you how the New and Old Testaments point to other gods in their consciousness. They're aware of it. Have a look at this. Obviously, we start off in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. How many gods are on view there? Good. That's a good start. There's only one there. Okay, very good. That's correct. But then when we get to the central figure of the Old Testament, the one to whom the promises are made, Abraham, Abraham starts off in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And part of the story is God grabs Abraham and says, Abraham, you're my chosen vessel. All the people on earth are going to be blessed through you. I choose you. And when he does so, and he's taking his family in obedience to God, guess what happens? The Bible tells me that his wife is hiding idols. His wife is hiding idols as they leave on the promise of God. His wife is hiding idols in her tent. Does the Old Testament have other gods in it? Sure. Here's the chosen man's family having idols of other gods in it. How about in Egypt? Does Egypt have other gods? The answer is yes. Let's have a look at all our hieroglyphics and all the rest of it. Did you know that when Moses is there doing his things that God has given him to be signs to Pharaoh, alongside are a group of magicians who are priests of other gods who are trying to do the same tricks that Moses is doing. Do you remember that part of the story? And it gets even more pressing than that. The ten plagues that free Israel in the end are actually targeting Egyptian gods. Did you know this? So, okay, does anyone know the Egyptian god of the sun? 
Ra, good answer. Okay, right. So Ra is the Egyptian god of the sun. So what does God do? One of the plagues is what? Darkness. You reckon that Ra rules the, rules the skies? We're going to have a plague that is blackness. There's a god of the river because the river brings life. So what happens to the river? It turns to blood and kills everything in it. There's a god of cattle and all the cattle die. There's a god who is a frog and the frogs invade their homes and then die. What happens at every level is God is engaging with the gods of Egypt and destroying them. Does the Bible know of other gods? Absolutely. What about when they, uh, when they get into the promised land? Who's in the promised lands? Well, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the, we'll ask some more college guys, Jebusites and satellites. <laughs> That's an official answer. Very good. Get that, uh, get that down. There's a lot of other ites, aren't there? And each of those other ites has other gods. And that's the reason they're going into the promised land. God says they've polluted the land. Does the Bible know about other gods? Absolutely, in this case. So then you think they're in the promised land, they know the one true God, and what happens when they have kings? Well, the kings lead them astray. And the people worship Baals and Molech and Ashtoreths and various other gods of the nations around them. And they are utterly unfaithful to the living and true God. In fact, they're so unfaithful that they lose the promised land. Does the Bible know about other gods? Absolutely, in the promised land. What about when they go into exile? In exile, we see the, the triumph, it appears, of foreign gods over Israel's God. And then we get Shadrach and Benny, who are in the fire. Why are they in the fire? Anyone remember? Because they won't bow down to the idol of another god. Does the Bible know about other gods? Absolutely. And God shows himself faithful in an incredible way in that story. And then they return from exile And what it says, Isaiah has these incredible prophecies about what will happen in the end times, that all the nations of the world will come flooding into Israel and worship all their gods on the corners. No. It says that the the nations of the world will be gathered together under the one holy mountain and they'll worship one God. Here's the amazing thing. I, I was blown away when I found this. There are 51 other deities mentioned by name in the Bible. Boom. Does the Bible in the Old Testament know of other gods? Yes, unequivocally. And what does it proclaim? There is one God over all. Well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus know about other gods? I want to suggest to you that he did. I want to show you four examples where he knew about people or events that were connected to other gods. So you know Jesus got asked a question about the coin. Do you remember this? What, what, what was the question? The question was, should we, should we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And it was supposed to be a real gotcha, right? Because on the back of the coin was what? Yeah, the emperor. And the emperor was worshipped as a god. There were literally temples to the emperor. He was worshipped as a god. So here's the tricky question. Hey, Jesus, should we use this idolatrous coin to pay taxes or should we be rebels and not pay any money to the emperor? And the answer is, (laughs) I love the participation, it's brilliant, so, so here's the thing. Jesus says what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In that, I want you to see, he is saying Caesar is only some sort of regional ruler. Give to God what is God's. Can you see that? Caesar can't be a God because he is not 
on the same level as God. We give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what is God's. There's a disparity between the two. So I think straight away we see Jesus engaging with one of the most powerful deities in the other world. Now, uh, in Samaria, Jesus comes across a bunch of uh, Jewish kind of offcasts. They're kind of heretics in Samaria, right? And we have the bit with the woman at the well, which we all know so well. She asks at the end, hey, Jesus, Jesus, don't go away. Stay in our town. It says in John 4 that he stayed for two days and taught in their town. I want you to hear what they say at the end of Jesus teaching in their town for two days. So these are heretics. What did Jesus teach them? The town says, they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Jesus spoke to heretics who weren't worshipping the true and living God. And when Jesus had finished teaching them for two days, their answer wasn't, we need to be more obedient Jews. Their answer is that Jesus is the saviour of the world. That is radical. Aware of other gods? Absolutely. Reprogramming to say that he was the king? Absolutely. What about Greeks? There's this incredible bit in John 12 where Jesus has been saying, my hour hasn't yet come. My hour hasn't yet come. Then in John chapter 12, we're told that the disciples say to Jesus, hey, some Greeks said that they wanted to see you. Do Greeks have other gods? Better believe it. And now the Greeks are saying, hey, Jesus, we want to see you. And Jesus says, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus is noticing people who had a whole different worldview are now asking about him. Aware of other gods? Absolutely. And then in Matthew 28, after his resurrection, Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Do you think Jesus knew there were other gods in the world? I'm telling you, he absolutely knew that. And what did he say to his disciples? You take my message to the world. Why? Because I'm the God of the world. There's only one that people need to be discipled to. So I reckon it's there in the Old Testament. I think it's there in the teaching of Jesus. What about in the New Testament? Well, again, I want to show you four places where it is. We see in Romans 1 these glorious words from, uh, from Paul. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to Jew, then to Gentile. So what does the New Testament tell us? Jews need Jesus. Jews need Jesus. Another step needs to be taken. You need to worship Jesus. Secondly, we see in Acts 25, Paul's in jail. He's in prison, and he ends up before the governors of Rome. Uh, well, they were regional governors that were sort of put into um, uh, to look after Palestine. And he's before them, and he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. And they make fun of him, and they say, hey, do you reckon you're going to make us disciples in so short a time? And he says, it's a short time or long. doesn't bother me. I want you to be exactly what I am except for my chains. Paul knew that they worshipped other gods, and what did he do? Preach Jesus. What about Acts 17? He goes to the Greeks, and in Athens, he says, I want to preach Jesus to you. We're going to look at that in a second. And then Revelation chapter 7 tells us, at the end of all time, there'll be gathered around the throne of God, people from every tribe and language and nation. And what does that mean? Tribe, language, nation, gods. 
People of every other God in the whole universe will come before the throne of God and they'll be worshipping Jesus. Is the New Testament aware of other gods? Absolutely, it is. And it proclaims unequivocally Jesus. Let's take a closer look at Paul in Athens. Athens is a pretty cool place. Has anyone here been there? Mm. Oh, very good. You guys, I'm sure afterwards, come and tell me all the things I get wrong. But that'll be great. Uh, It's an amazing place. Very ancient center of, uh, of Greece, and, their, um, and their, their place of worship is, uh, is in Athens. I want you to come with me. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. You remember all the ones. Acts chapter 17. We're going to have a look at verses 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. See, Paul had been on the run from Thessalonica and a couple of other places. He'd been run out of town. And now he ends up in in Athens. And what does he see around him? He sees a place which has gone crazy with other gods. Okay? They have a whole pantheon of different gods. Gods for war, gods for love. God's for travel, you name it, there's a God for it. God's for victory, even though victory's lost a head, but you know. A whole bunch of different gods. And what's Paul's response? He's a good Jew. So what's commandment number one of the Ten Commandments? Anyone know? You shall have no other gods before me. What's the second commandment? No graven images, which means no idols. And where is Paul? He's in Athens, and what's he surrounded by? It's idol central, and it says that Paul is greatly distressed. And so what's his response? Well, I better get out of here and leave these pagans to it. No. What does he do? He engages. He steps before it, and what does he speak about? Jesus. You're picking up the theme. Jesus. That's who he speaks about. But I want you to note, they can see that he's preaching something different. Isn't this interesting? What is this new teaching you're bringing to us, right? So the Athenians, who have all these gods, recognize in Paul, you're saying something different, aren't you? Do you remember what I said? Religious people see religious difference. Secular people just see stupidity. These religious people saw Paul was bringing something new to their ears, and they don't think that it's the same. So Paul engages with them in three contexts. Uh, He engages with them in the synagogue. Now, Now, why have I got a laundry mat? for the synagogue. Because if I'm a Jew, and I'm with all these pagans, it's a pretty dirty place. And I need to withdraw to my synagogue to get clean again, literally, probably wash, and then re-engage with the world around me. And people hang out at the laundromat, and they chat, and they get clean, right? So that's the synagogue, okay? That's the Jewish teaching place. So Paul engaged in the synagogue. He also engaged up at Woolies, Right? So he hung out where people were getting clean, and then he went to the shops. Why? Because everybody's got to get some more marge and a loaf of bread. 
So why did he go there? Because I'm going to to cross paths with everyone there. So he goes to the synagogue, then he goes to the marketplace, and the last thing is he gets abducted and gets taken to do a TED Talk. Anyone know what a TED Talk is? Yeah? Some of you nerdier people will know what this is. Okay. So TED Talk, I think, is the Areopagus. TED Talks are like a 15-minute thing where you get the best ideas from around the world. Okay? Go and Google it. You'll have fun. You'll get lost. You'll come up for air about an hour and a half later. And you'll think about all these ideas that are changing the world. That was the Areopagus, right? Let's share some great ideas and let's chat them over. And so I think the Areopagus is a TED Talk. There we go. That's, uh, that's pretty fun. Now, uh, how many people have been watching Sesame Street recently? No, keep your hands down. You can fess up quietly. Okay, so uh, if you've been watching Sesame Street, what is this about? Yes! Now, I don't know if this still happens. Does this still happen in Sesame Street? Ah, see, I just found out all the people who watch it now. Um, Okay, so one of these things is not like the other. Can you pick the thing that's not like the other? Okay, good. All right. Yes, Owen, you can. Good, mate. The shoe. Okay, great. Uh, I want you to see what one of these things that is not like the other looks like in this passage. Have a look with me at verses 22 and following. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. I want you to note he did not say you are very idolatrous. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring." See, what was the thing? He looked around Athens and saw idols and altars everywhere. And what did he find? One of these things is not like the others. One of them is to an unknown God. And Paul says, what you've worshipped in ignorance, this unaddressed God, that's the one I'm going to talk to you about. And in question time afterwards, you can ask me what happened with that unknown God, and I'll tell you some more. But he was saying, this God is the one I'm going to talk to you about. Now, when I went to, uh, when I went to India... I found in the Hindu temples, often the carvings had been defaced. Does anyone know why that was? Thank you. Muslims. Muslims don't want any graven images, so what they do is they come and chip the faces off all the Hindu carvings in the temples when they took over the place. Now, do you think those religions are the same? There it is in stone. They're not the same, right? They're not the same. So I want you to see what happens here in these next couple of verses. Therefore, since since we are God's offspring, verse 29, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul 
in Athens rebukes their idolatry. Paul in Athens preaches for repentance. You guys need to repent. Radical word, probably not part of their religious worldview at all. You need to turn around. I want you to see how audacious he was being. Okay? The true God, he says, is this. The true God, the one who is the true God, is the creator of all. The true God needs no temple. The true God needs no offerings. The true God accepts no idols. The true God, he says, gives life to all. The true God determines where the nations should be. The true God deserves seeking, and the true God can be found. Forget all your idols, Paul's saying. I've got one God for you, and he's awesome. He's totally different. This is my God. And I told you he was being pretty audacious. Let me show you how audacious he's being. This is Athens, right? I'll show you where the TED Talk was happening. This is the Areopagus right there. Paul, meanwhile, is telling people that the true and living God does not live in temples made by human hands. Oh, I went one click too far. Oh, that's very disappointing. Oh, that's tragic. No, that was not good at all. Uh, Oh, that's very sad. All right, you'll, you'll see. That's the quick recap. Very good. You got it? You got it? It's building. Here it is. There we go. TED Talk. And behind him, meanwhile... Is one of the ancient wonders of the world. Right? There's the Acropolis. There's the Parthenon on the hill. And Paul is saying, by the way, God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Do you see how audacious this is? This is still the pride of Greece today. The true God needs none of this. Ah, that's radical. And so Paul is preaching in Athens amongst all the other gods. He's saying Jesus is good for all and he's utterly unique. He's good for all and he's utterly unique. What should we do? What should we do with this truth? Well, how do they respond? How do the people in that place respond? They respond two ways, with sneering and with faith. Have a look with me at 32 to 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman called Damaris and a number of others. Isn't it beautiful? There's some really incredible woman who gets named and remembered for all eternity because she came to faith at that meeting. How brilliant is that? So sneering in faith, I think that's the same response as we get today, isn't it? Resurrection? Hilarious. That just might be the single most important thing I've ever heard in my life. That's, it divides. It divides. It's interesting, though. I would say our world is a little different from Paul's world. Before we go, before I say to you, run out there and find the idols and preach to everyone. That could be the application for the sermon, right? Here's why I think it's different out there. Our world is secular, not religious. What that means is we believe in material stuff and not so much in God things. We're secular. On top of that, we have no religious idols. We have lots of other idols, but they're not very religious. They're not called gods. They're called mortgages and holidays and hobbies. We don't have a whole bunch of people who are seeking. We have a whole bunch of people who are friending and liking and crying face. And I would argue that we don't have too many Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and our intellectualism at the moment as a society is going down the drain. Witness me laughing at Gogglebox. I think Paul's launching points are all gone. 
So we can't go. You see that God, the unknowing God, I'm going to preach him. You see that mortgage? It's a substitute for your desire for security, which is bound up in a seeking for a God you can't see. It's hard work, isn't it? Hard work. So what do we say? How do we begin to respond? When someone says to me, that's good for you, I want our first question back to be, what's your background with the church? So if you think it's good for me, I want to understand why you think it's good for me. Do you have any background with the church? And if you have no background with the church, I don't know why you think it's good for me. What's your background with the church? That's my first question. Second question is, could it be good for you? Do you think that's hard to ask? Someone says, oh, that's good for you. What's your background with the church? Do you think it could be good for you? We find ourselves in a different place, don't we? Why do we do that? Well, because we have a God who is good for all. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. See, God's good for all. I want this person to find him. Secondly, oh, yes, and we can talk about the resurrection at Easter, so bring him along. Second one, one religion among many, again, I want to say, oh, yeah, what's your background with the church? Do you have any background with the church? Why would you say that all religions are the same? And the second question I want to ask is, would you like to find a little out about how he claimed to be different? All religions are the same. Would you like to find a little about why Christianity might be a bit different? See, here's what Jesus said, that other reading we had, which we haven't touched on at all from John 14. What did Jesus say there? He said something utterly radical in our relativist world. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father except through me. That is a boldly exclusive claim. So either Jesus was wrong or you're wrong that all religions are the same. Do you want to find some more about how Christianity might be different from other religions? Come along at Easter, find out some more. Here's the thing. Jesus is, I want to tell you today, he is good for every one of you and everyone who's not here tonight. And he is utterly unique. What do you say? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I thank you that the Bible came into being in a world filled with gods. And yet you, Lord, claim for yourself exclusive worship and honour. Father, we thank you for your Son who is the way, the truth and the life. And I pray those of us who know him would not compromise this beautiful truth, but you might lend us grace and patience and the help of your Holy Spirit to stand up for him in this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I've got a bit... You know, fired up, because why not? Jesus is pretty good. Do you reckon Jesus is good? I think he's pretty good. Um, Have you got any questions, things you'd like to follow up with me on from that? Oh, okay. You you think um, that that's a hard question? Yes. I I wouldn't ask, what's your background with the church? Because? Because the minute you mention church... You're, you're on a certain tangent. Absolutely. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I get the challenge of saying it. My thought would be, if the answer is don't go to church, we want to stay with Jesus, which I like, 
The problem is when I talk about Jesus, but I don't know what your background is with the church, what happens is what you believe about the church will impact your ability to hear me on Jesus. And so what I've found is when I have that question answered, what's your background with the church? And they say, for instance, church is horrible. I went to, you know, uh, I'll I'll make up a, I went to, um, actually this is a real story. A 50-year-old bloke uh, sitting on a couch. I was interviewing them because I was going to marry them. Found out that they were getting remarried because he'd been divorced. Um, They'd been living together for eight years. It was my first wedding. I'm sitting there with this bloke and I say, mate, what's your background with the church? And this 50-year-old man starts crying on the couch next to me. He says, I grew up in a Catholic Catholic, uh, school where the nuns and the um, brothers were incredibly strict. They beat us. And my experience of church and Christianity was horrific. And I said, well, mate, I'm sitting here today as a minister. And in whatever representative way I can, I want to apologize to you for the way Jesus was presented to you. I want you to know that God loves you. And whatever was done in his name to you is utterly at odds with who he is. And this guy's weeping on the couch. And he goes, I didn't know that. And we meet, and I cancel it. He gives his life to Jesus. And I'm saying to you, I wouldn't have got there. It's not, it's not the be all end. I think your concern's right. But I wouldn't have got there with this guy if I'd just gone hard on Jesus because that iceberg of personal experience would have been utterly unexposed and it would have been hardening his heart against the potential response to Jesus. So I think it's hard to do, but I've always found it worthwhile. You had a question, Russ? Go, ask away. Sorry, sorry. Um, yeah, just two words that, um, just your opinion on whether they're interchangeable, and that's religious and spiritual. Uh, yeah, uh, Jeff uh, added something this morning to say uh, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. I think there's something in that. Um, is Christianity spiritual? Uh, is, so your words were religion and spiritual? Or religious and spiritual? I think it's not the words that Christians use. So if you hear someone say, I'm spiritual, you'll, I'll, I'm going to be terrible. I'm going to say, I, I want to ask, what's your background with the church? Now, now, I know it sounds like I've got only one question to ask, right? I, I think it's desperately important to figure out where people are coming from. So if someone says to me, I'm spiritual, and I ask them, what's your background with the church? And they say, church? It's got nothing to do with church. I'm a seeker, and, and I've been to India, and I've been on my trek, and I can show you my tats and, and various other things, and tell you about my search, right? If I, if I assume that they're the same thing, I, I think I'm missing something. I think people are signaling something to us when they say they're spiritual. That's different from saying they're religious. Religious is something maybe that somebody else does. Spiritual is something that I do. I think that's the distinction. So I don't think many people self-identify as religious. I'm pretty religious is kind of the person who goes twice a year, Easter and Christmas, I think. And the spiritual one is far more in touch with something that's Eastern and out there. That would be my vibe. Other questions? Yeah, go. Um, Some time ago, before New Life was here, um, Camden um, hit the news internationally in regard to resisting um, the Muslim community coming into what was at the time a very heavily middle-class Caucasian, white Anglo-Saxon type of um, neighbourhood. Uh, and it was a really difficult time to be a Christian. How do we 
respond in love to other religions and yet at the same time still be able to, um, to maintain the, the first commandment. Yeah. So here's where it gets really tricky. A Christianity travels well personally and doesn't scale up to authority very well. Um, it doesn't scale up to politics very well. Um, it doesn't scale up to rulership very well, okay? When, when we're in power, I think we do a pretty terrible job generally. It works kind of down at this level, I think, better. How do we do that well? It, it's a really tough question. Um, I, got, um, I got asked when, when we first started here, um, you want, so by the developers here who I was saying, hey, we're, we're going to knock on some doors and welcome people to the neighbourhood. Now, we're very concerned. You're a religious group. What are you going to do? And I said, well, part of our vision... We want to see new life in Jesus come to every home for their salvation. I said, we're pretty serious about that as a church. The good of the community and the glory of God. They're the three parts of our, of our vision. Now, you're not going to worry about the third one. You think I'm a bit crazy about the first. But I want you to say, no, we're dead set serious about the good of our community. And so then she came back at me and she said, yeah, 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 yeah. What are you, what are you going to do if a Muslim group comes in? I said, I'd welcome them. She scratched her head and said, Why? So, well, we're a pluralist society here in Australia. Uh, we would welcome any religious group that wanted to be. And she said, would you work alongside them? I said, I'd be happy to be at meetings where there are Muslims at, no problems at all. You need to know we don't worship the same gods. And they'd say the same thing to me. So I'm not going to pretend to you that we're worshipping the same God. However, if you ask if I can work civilly in a meeting with a Muslim, I'll tell you no problems at all. They went, oh. Great, really good. Now, in that case, when we come back to Camden, what should we do? How do we behave in that environment? I think we need to find a way in order to be gracious and loving. I think we need to be careful about defending things. Um, I think we can fall into um, a political power projection that isn't connected to service in the gospel and a crucified saviour. However, if, uh, yeah, I'll find myself trapped in a second, but here's the thing. I want to reserve the right for people from religions to hold land in areas around Australia. Why? Because I want to start planting churches. And if I create a special exemption for Muslims, because they're the specially tough people or something like that, we need to make sure they can't. Where do I get the gumption to say that the council should lease me a building in Brinjelli to hold my Christian meeting? Oh, no, they're fundamentally different. They're not to the secular people. So I've now created this really awkward, ugly tension that doesn't need to be there. It's the same with um, ethics coming into Scripture in schools. What do I say to that? Am I happy about it? Not really. But here's what I said. No problems. Welcome, ethics. Come in. If you can keep a bunch of people every single week of the year teaching primary school age kids ethics, knock yourselves out. As atheists, you're going to have a tough time staffing that one. So you can have as many classes as you want because I reckon they're going to fall over in about three or four weeks. I've rabbited on. Catch me afterwards. I'm not sure I did justice to your question. Um, thank you, guys. Want to point to Jesus? Did you know it's Easter? Apparently, Jesus is alive, and that's the proof that God will one day judge the world. I'm going to sit down.